Okay, we're live. Hi, this is William Ramsey. Welcome to William Ramsey Invest Investigates. On today's show, I have a very special guest. His name is Casey Michelle, and he's publishing a book in November 2021. The title of the book is American Kleptocracy, How the U.S. Created the World's Greatest Money Laundering Scheme in History. Really fascinating book. Read through it. Very timely. A lot of names that, as you see in the news, Manafort, um, some other interesting characters. And I learned a lot about the book. Uh, there are a lot of details and elements about the American financial system and its history that I didn't no, until I read this. So I was really delighted to read through this. Again, the author's name is Casey Michelle. So Casey, are you there? Yes, I am here, William. It's great to be here. Thanks so much for having me. Awesome. Well, thanks for agreeing to the interview. For people who may not have heard your name or background, can you talk about what your kind of background, journalistic background, and what led you to write this book, American Kleptocracy? Yeah, sure. Uh, a great question. Certainly something I ask myself probably more than is, is healthy. Uh, I am uh, a journalist by training. I'm currently based in New York. I write for a number of outlets, primarily on uh, illicit finance, on money laundering, on transnational or international dirty money flows, international corruption, and then the intersection of those funds, that money, the process of laundering that money, again, the transition and transformation of dirty money into clean. Where does that money end up? How does it affect us? How does it uh, enter into and upend, in many cases, political systems, both at home and abroad. How does it affect everything from national security to electoral legitimacy to wealth inequality? All of these different elements that I have been working on and writing on and covering for a number of outlets, uh, you know, Washington Post, The Atlantic, Foreign Policy, Foreign Affairs, and the like the last few years, all of that came together uh, in this book. So this book is in one sense a culmination of so much of what I and certainly some other talented journalists that I've had the good fortune to work alongside and to build off of have been working on for the last few years. But maybe even beyond that, you know, maybe you can tell from my, my accent, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a proud American, born and raised in Portland, Oregon. I went to school down in Texas. I now live in New York City. I've lived all across the country. And maybe we'll get a little bit further into this as the conversation goes on. But as, as you and listeners may be aware, there's been a kind of a smattering of really fantastic books and investigations, certainly over the last few years, looking at this kind of broader world, international world of offshore finance, of shell companies, of you know the folks that we now describe as kleptocrats, these kind of uh, you know, they're, they're dictatorships or, or oligarchs or families and friends therein. What have they been doing with their money? How have they been moving it? How have they been concealing it? And again, there have been some absolutely fantastic books written on the topic that look at this kind of international financial architecture that has been built up over the last decade, two decades, and in some cases, three decades or longer. Um, but what, what I wanted to do, again, as an American... And given that what the book argues, the U.S. has transformed into the central node of this broader international architecture, as it argues, the world's greatest offshore financial secrecy haven. You know, I wanted to look at the U.S. in particular. I wanted to look at what the federal government had been doing. I wanted to look at what state governments had been doing. I wanted to look at specific policies and specific decisions that allowed certain industries to bloom and to blossom into becoming the go-to industries for all those who are looking to move, conceal their funds, their dirty money, that enjoy the fruits uh, of that laundering process itself. And especially to be writing for uh, American audiences. They don't know the first thing about this. You know, I, 
as I say, you know, I mean, I, I love my parents. God bless them. I, they couldn't have done a better job raising me, but they don't know the first thing about how to go about setting up a shell company, how to go about working around basic money laundering uh, or anti-money laundering restrictions, how to then use those funds to purchase real estate, invest in anonymous trusts, uh, 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 you know, enjoy uh, any and all luxury goods or, uh, or plow it into things like hedge funds and private equity, and then to use that money again for their own political ends. You know, I, I wanted my parents to come away from this book having some semblance of understanding about how this financial architecture first developed and then how it now operates. And uh, they still haven't read through the book yet. I'm, I'm hoping soon that they'll come back to me and say, yeah, it was fine. Well, I can tell you this. It's very readable. You have a very uh, accessible narrative style that you can follow these stories. So it's not a dry recitation of facts and statistics about the situation. So you contextualize it in real life scenarios and things that happen in the world. But for the listeners who are listening to this interview, can you give them an idea? You had something in your introduction about the actual size of these money flows are enormous. Can you give them a, a retelling of really what you're dealing with before we get into specific instances of this happening? Yeah, we are. This is this is the very first page of the book, and I have a, have a copy right here. This is, you know, I have to, to shout out my 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 first editor on the book, Pranoy Sarkar, who uh, has this for a number of his books. He wants to lay the groundwork. He wanted me to lay the groundwork at the very first page to provide the context for this, because as as the prologue describes, so much of this financial architecture and 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 so much of the magnitude of these financial networks and, and, and this financial scope, in so many ways, it's kind of too big to see. Yeah. You know, we remember back in 2008, the bank's too big to fail. Well, what we have right now is, is a financial architecture. And again, the scope and the scale of financial flows that are in many ways just mind boggling. You know, how do you conceive of a trillion dollars, let alone multiple trillions of dollars? So, so just to, to give a little bit of context, the very first page of the book, we run through a couple key data points. And I'll, I'll pull just a few of them out right now. So the first one is the, the estimated amount of private financial wealth located in global financial secrecy jurisdictions. We're talking about 24 to $32 trillion. That's trillion, T-R, uh, trillion dollars. Um, uh, the annual, this, this is another data point that gives a little bit more context for some of the efforts to uh, clean up a little bit of this or to counterbalance some of this. We have uh, the annual global foreign aid budget, $135 billion, certainly a significant amount of money. But if you look at that in context with the developing countries that it's going to, what have those developing countries lost? They've lost 10 times as much in terms of that financial outflow uh, regarding, again, these kind of financial secrecy mechanisms over and over and over again. And then runs through a number of other specifically American uh, details. And it just closes with this last uh, uh, statistic, the country most complicit in helping individuals hide their finances, according to the Tax Justice Network, that is right here in the United States uh, of America. So that's some of the context for what we're talking about. Right. I mean, it's just an enormous number, trillion, tens of trillions of dollars. Some of these countries don't have GDPs of 50 billion or 100 billion. So immense amounts. And you use examples, but like, so it shows some of these people are offshoring money that could go to the benefit of their citizens. And where's the number one place to hide it? 
yeah, the US. right here in, right. In, in the United States of America. And again, the book goes into some of the details about how certain policies developed to encourage that, certain uh, political figures that oversaw and encouraged those transitions and the kind of the broader financial ethos that propelled that uh, before going into a number of, you know, what I like to think are pretty colorful case studies about some of the kleptocrats who've been taking advantage and how it's begun, again, upending so many different elements right here in the U.S. as well as elsewhere. So maybe you can talk about this background. You talk about Delaware, um, Las Vegas, then Wyoming. Maybe you can see this, the undergirding structure that allows for the secrecy to, in, to take place in the financial markets. Yeah, absolutely. You know, William, the... Um, for so many years, one of the one of the first entry points that I had in covering this world is a, a tool that I think listeners may may have heard of, uh, and that is something called a a shell company or a shell corporation. You know, obviously, when we when we think of companies, when we when we think of corporations, you know, we think of the uh, you know the Nikes of the world or the or the you know the Taco Bells of the world or the Microsofts of the world. You know, companies that actually produce some kind of tangible product, whether it's a computer or a, you know, a burrito or a, a sneaker, whatever it is, right? You can be able to identify what they're producing, probably how they're making a profit from it, what their corporate structure looks like. And then beyond that, who is actually running and overseeing that company? That is to say, who is benefiting from this company itself. And, and it gets obviously so much of modern capitalism, the modern American economy is predicated on the ability to form structure and then profit from companies and corporations. And that's fine. That has led to God knows what, uh, you know, how much prosperity we've seen over the last two centuries, certainly in the West, as well as increasingly elsewhere. The problem that I outline in the book is that that's not what companies always are. And that's not what companies always do. And this isn't giving anything away in the book. This is in the very earliest chapters of the book that, again, lays some of the groundwork for some of the stories that then follow that shows how these kleptocrats, these oligarchs, these, these dictators, these arms traffickers and human traffickers and wildlife traffickers are using these tools to launder their money and then inject, inject it into other sectors of the especially American economy because there, there, there's one particular type of company that as we've seen over the last few decades has really become the building block the basic building block of what i describe and others describe as american kleptocracy and that is what we call a shell company or a shell corporation I, it, it's something of a self-explanatory term you know when you set up a a shell it is something that's kind of a front or something used to purposely obfuscate or something that's purposely used to hide what's going on underneath or beneath. And that is exactly what we see with shell companies. These are still companies. These are still legal creations in a certain sense, legal fictions. I mean, these aren't things you can hold in your in your hand. It's not something you can you can see on a table. It exists in many ways only on paper. And these companies go through the same process of formation, of registration, and of structuring as we see with other perfectly legitimate companies. The only difference that we've seen, and especially developed here in the U.S., is that shell companies allow for uh, certain individuals or groups of individuals to create this company, uh, but they never have to go through with revealing who they actually are, or in some cases, who they're actually working on 
behalf of, and then beyond that, what they are actually doing. So we call them shell companies. I refer to them in the book a lot as anonymous shell companies. You know, there's some little technical differences, but very often they're, they're one in the same. They are companies that are used primarily to hide the individuals, to hide the finances behind those individuals, and to move those monies that are flowing through the shell company or that are attached to the shell company, again, into any other number of industries that they want to, and to do so knowing full well that the government, that tax authorities, that investigators, that human rights activists, that journalists, anybody and everybody will never know who it is that's behind those shell companies or who it is that's behind those shell companies that are purchasing luxury real estate, that are purchasing luxury yachts, that are purchasing high-end artwork, that are investing in private equity and hedge funds, that are injecting themselves into a whole range of American industries. And again, one of the earliest chapters goes into specifically, why is it that the U.S. blossomed into this global center of anonymous shell companies? But more specifically, why is it that a tiny state on the eastern seaboard of America, one of the original 13 colonies that isn't really known for much beyond the fact that it was the first state to ratify the Constitution, why is it that a state like Delaware became the global capital of providing anonymous shell companies for anybody and everybody? Why is it that Delaware made it so easy that if you have 15 minutes and $100, you can call up a Delaware official. You could even go online and do it yourself and have an anonymous shell company in no time. And then beyond that, why is it that other states began following suit? And how is it that states like Nevada, states like Wyoming, as well as a number of others, began creating their own kind of legal regimes to make it even more secret, even more accessible, what political scientists like to call this kind of race to the bottom, to make it as easy as possible for anybody and everybody, no matter the source of the money, to get an anonymous shell company and again, lay that kind of bedrock for all the kleptocracy that we have seen over the last few decades since. Yeah, it's really remarkable. So you have this ease of creating a company with secrecy and the attraction of the U.S. is also because of its protection of private property rights. So you have the security. So the U.S. becomes a ideal uh, place to, to place people's money. And there are other competitors to the U.S. There, there's, you talk about Mauritius, the Caymans, British Virgin Islands, but they don't have that same kind of huge um, economic imprint like the U.S., right? You're right. They don't have the same kind of imprint. They don't have the same kind of architectural uh, uh, infrastructure that's been built up uh, around it. You know, there's one statistic that's mentioned in the, uh, in the book that the U.S. at one point, this is, this is from a few years ago, created and produced more anonymous shell companies every year than the next 41 tax havens in the world combined. So it's not just, as you just laid out, William, correctly, that it's this, uh, uh, you know, the, the, the remarkable private property protections and legal protections uh, that are uh, available to those behind American shell companies. It's also just the volume. It is the magnitude. Right. This is, you know, if you if you compare Delaware to the British Virgin Islands, yes, they might have comparable uh, magnitude of, of people and perhaps services. But 
the British Virgin Islands, that's just one jurisdiction. Delaware is one of 50 states that we have across the country that are all competing for the same dollars. Now, again, Delaware had a head start. Delaware has a whole range of other advantages to it. But as we've seen with Nevada, as we've seen with Wyoming, as we've seen with a number of other states, others are only too happy to try to get a little bit of this kind of this gush of money, whether it's clean money, whether it's illicit money, whether it's money they have no idea what the source of is. They are all too happy to try to grab their slice of the pie and keep doing that without the rest of us knowing anything about who they're working with. And I think you make an important part, and it's a theme in your book, is that not only are the states abetting this placement from offshore onshore funds, a massive amount, but the professionals, there's a whole almost financial system of lawyers and accountants and things who are helping facilitate this, correct? Can you talk more about that? Yeah, you're, you're absolutely right, Lynn. There's a, another political science term that I use in the book. Now, I'm not a political scientist by training. I have a, you know, a master's degree from Columbia a few years ago in Russian and post-Soviet studies, which, as listeners may be familiar, certainly some of the governments in the region are no strangers to oligarchs, to uh, dictatorial uh, uh, regimes and families that are as enmeshed in the offshore world as, as anybody. But the, the term that comes to mind is uh, state capture. That is to say the uh, uh, almost symbiotic, almost parasitic relationship that develops between state governments, and again, these are places like Delaware and Nevada and Wyoming, and specific industries and specific industrial interests because those industries become such a pillar of the state and local economy that the legislators there have to look out for the best interests of those industries, look out for the best interests of those that are profiting, that are providing these kinds of offshoring uh, tools. You know, again, just to, to get back to, I, I don't want to harp only on Delaware because so many other states are taking advantage of this, but certainly Delaware has led the way in so much of this. But this is another statistic that's that's in the book. There are now more companies formed in Delaware than there are people, and if you look at it in a certain way, you could argue, as I do in the book that Delaware legislators' constituents are no longer their citizens. Now it's those companies. And again, you're not talking about only those who are helping set up the shell companies. You're talking also about the accountants that have to go through, that don't have to, that choose to go through and help with some of these financial flows. You're talking about the lawyers and the legal firms that go around to make sure that all of the legal prote protections are available to these uh, specific uh, shell companies. You're also talking about things like lobbyists and consultants that are in, uh, whether it's Delaware State Legislature or in Washington, pushing back against any kind of regulatory uh, uh, oversight. You have this kind of mushrooming of different um, you know, nominally distinct industries that also bloom up surrounding the, uh, you know, again, this offshoring industry writ large, but have this symbiotic parasitic relationship that then grows so close to and really glom onto the legislators in Delaware. And as we've seen increasingly in Washington as well, uh, to make sure that they can work and operate as freely as they want to and keep that geyser of questionable suspect money, no matter the source, flowing as much as they want. Right. So you talk about kind of something other people may know, the Panama Papers and how they exposed and they were involved in Nevada, but how that money came out of Argentina, really all over the world. It was an insight to this once, you know, a piece of your book, the insight into this 
global web of hiding money. So America wants the money, has an incentive to take the money and hide it. But also the people who are stealing it don't want people to know they're taking it, right? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, that that is part and parcel of the secrecy inherent to, as we're describing, the shell companies, but also a number of other industries that I, I go through in the book. Again, these are things like luxury American real estate, art and auction houses. Uh, these are things like luxury goods vendors, private equity, uh, et cetera, et cetera. But, you know, just to go back to the anonymous shell companies, you know, it, uh, the, the term that you just use, William, right? Secrecy. That is what is at the heart of what these Americans, these American industries, these American states, these American legislators are selling to any number of foreign operators, whether it's dictators abroad, whether it's oligarchs abroad, whether it is, again, drug traffickers, gun runners, wildlife poacher, poachers, human enslavers, anybody who has any kind of dirty money in their pocket looking to hide it, looking to move it, looking to launder it, and then looking to transform it into clean, legitimate, and especially untraceable assets, boy, uh, you know, there's no better friend than the United States of America. And you mentioned some very unsavory, there's a lot of unsavory characters who are engaged in this, but you mentioned Victor Boot, who people mm -hmm. might know as a huge gun runner. I think he was using a shell, com shell companies out of Delaware or somewhere in the States, if I remember correctly. So you've got unsavory characters benefiting from the legal infrastructure of the United States. Yeah, no, I mean, it, it is, uh, I've already forgotten more than I'll ever remember about the number of people, absolutely horrific people that have taken advantage uh, of uh, American shell companies. And again, of this broader financial secrecy architecture. I know, I know well, you just mentioned Victor Boot. For listeners who may be unfamiliar, he was a Soviet born, born in Soviet Tajikistan, uh, uh, arms trafficker. Um, but not just kind of a run-of-the-mill arms trafficker. He was, in many ways, the greatest arms trafficker of the entire post-Cold War era. If anybody built up illicit arms trafficking into an industry and, in many ways, a, a monopoly in certain parts of the world, it was Victor Boot. And we're talking about horrific regimes in places like Sub-Saharan Africa. We're talking about links to groups like the Taliban that are involved with Boot's networks. I, I, you know, I think if... If uh, uh, listeners may be wanting a, a kind of an entertaining, uh, uh, <laughs> I, I guess, exposure to or introduction to boot, I, I can highly recommend uh, Nicolas Cage's 2005 film, Lord of War, which is it's not a documentary, but it's based in large part on boot himself. Uh, as well right. As but it's film. interesting you mentioned that because part of our common culture involves this money laundering. So you mentioned Breaking Bad and Ozark, which are both about the drama or whatever conflicts that occur in hiding funds in the U.S. Yeah, yeah. And again, both of those are fantastic shows. You know, I've watched Breaking Bad multiple times. I'm certainly a, a, a faithful follower of everything Ozark. And both of those shows, to their credit, depict my laundering very well using things like the cash economy, using things like casinos, obviously, in Breaking Bad's case, using a, a car wash. So taking the laundering almost literally. Uh, as I mentioned in the book, again, those are all, you know, perfectly accurate uh, depictions of how certain elements of modern money laundering work. Uh, the problem, as I see it, or certainly what I'm arguing in the book, is that those depictions are too small in scale.
That is to say, they are depicting only one node of one particular network, not to say that those don't exist and not to say that certainly that law enforcement shouldn't be focused on those, but that is one small element of a far larger, far broader picture that is happening across the country, across all 50 states, certainly across the territories as well, bringing in, whether it's the funds from uh, narco trafficking, like in both of those shows, or whether it's bringing in funds from, again, some of the most despotic and despicable regimes in the world that have been pillaging and plundering their people for years and years and years that are also doing so uh, not only uh, to, to, to smother uh, uh, you know, basic democracy on the ground, but are doing so to help fund and bankroll some of their specifically anti-American efforts. I mean, this is one of the great ironies in the book is that you have, in many ways, folks in Washington, D.C., and to their credit, again, as I lay, on the, lay out in the book, with some of the most progressive and forward-thinking anti-money laundering policies and certainly counter-kleptocracy policies anywhere in the world. And all we see happening is that they are undercut time and time and time again by whether it's certain states like Delaware, Nevada, Wyoming, whether it's uh, certain lobbying groups and industrial groups, things like the Chamber of Commerce, things like the National uh, Realtors Association, those that have a vested interest in maintaining this financial architecture and beyond that, maintaining the secrecy that is such a uh, a wonderful pool, a magnet for all the dirty money in the world. You see this, these kind of countervailing trends uh, taking place right here in the U.S. Uh, itself. And it's a tension that has existed for years and years. And I, I have no reason to think it won't continue uh, for years to come as well. And you do include mem members of, uh, you know, the government, D.C. It was uh, Levin, I think, was the senator from Michigan. So there were, and there was also the anti-kleptocracy uh, legal, Pockets. yeah, thank you. That came out. Maybe you can talk about Levin, what his concern because he keeps popping up trying to curtail a lot of this money laundering and dirty money. Yeah, look, I, one of the, the great honors of, of writing this book was um, getting the chance last year to, to interview Senator Carl Levin, who is this you know three decades plus senator from the state of Michigan. And Senator Levin unfortunately passed earlier, um, earlier this year. So, you know, we certainly hope he, he rests in peace. And if there is a hero in this book, not to say there aren't any number of other heroic figures that have been involved in this, but certainly in this book, if there is a hero, it is Carl Levin. It's not so much for what he's done over the last few years because he retired in 2015. He wrote his memoirs, obviously a very good book uh, uh, in and of itself, but for what he was doing in the late 1990s and through the 2000s. So just as the kind of quick elevator pitch for Senator Levin, he was the ranking member on the Senate's Permanent Subcommittee uh, on Investigations, or, or PSI. And this is, this is really where the Senate investigative capacity really comes home. And Congress has a very wide writ as it pertains to being able to investigate. And they certainly have far broader resources than, than many media outlets do these days. So there's a reason that so much of the book pulls on some of these Senate investigations from the, the late 90s and early 2000s. And, and really, I mean, if any listeners want far more granular detail about how these offshoring networks operate and again, how they use these American systems. I can't recommend enough looking specifically through some of these Senate reports that came out in the late nineties and early two thousands. But, but Levin was the one who was always 
leading. He was the one who had his eye on the ball, who could see the kind of financial architecture that was coming, that was going to begin dominating states like Delaware, uh, Wyoming, Nevada, and how that was going to begin uh, upending whether it's democracy promotion or even national security more broadly. You know, I don't know that he ever necessarily saw a, a figure like Donald Trump coming to the fore and emerging from one of these kind of pro-kleptocracy industries, that is to say luxury real estate and all the uh, suspect and anonymous funds that flowed through that. But certainly Levin uh, could see the contours of what was coming. You know, he was one of the first legislators to push uh, legislation to ban anonymous shell companies. He was the one using his perch time and time and time again to call other legislators to attention about the threats that these systems pose to, again, national security, again, to uh, things like electoral legitimacy, to things like wealth inequality and the broader gutting of uh, uh, the middle class in the U.S. And uh, again, the first section of the book goes into detail. But if there is one substantial victory in this space before this year, maybe we'll have time to talk about that. This was the passage of the anti-money laundering language in, uh, of all things, the Patriot Act, which listeners may remember was passed uh, immediately after the September 11th terror attacks, certainly has wide room for criticism as it pertains to civil liberties. But because of what Levin and his colleagues managed to get into the bill, uh, the Patriot Act remains arguably the greatest single piece of anti-money laundering and counter-kleptocracy legislation ever passed, not just in the U.S., but in the world. I mean, it was one of the revelations, I think, in, in writing this book is, you know, you look back to the 1990s and the American banking sector was an absolute wild west. Correct. They could work with anybody they wanted. They could pro- uh, They could uh, uh, work with any proceeds of foreign corruption they wanted. They could go out and recruit any kleptocrat, any oligarch, any dictator they wanted and do so perfectly freely because there was basically no regulation otherwise, to say nothing of all, again, the shell companies that were available to them. Uh, but because of the language that Levin spearheaded and the uh, uh, legislation and regulations within the Patriot Act, uh, the American banking sector is perhaps ironically enough, now one of the linchpins and key sectors uh, pushing against these other industries. That is to say, pushing for more money laundering regulation elsewhere. I mean, certainly the banking sector has God knows how many other issues to it, but as it pertains to the kinds of regulations that we need to see implemented elsewhere to begin cleaning up this gargantuan issue, uh, the the banking sector is actually a success story. And because of uh, the role and leadership that Senator Levin played in the, uh, the early 2000s, and then certainly everything he did to keep uh, highlighting all of these issues thereafter. Maybe you can tell the story of the Riggs Bank. It's a bank that I saw when I lived in D.C. in the 90s. I was surprised it was gone, but maybe you can use that as an example. You use other examples of Equatorial Guinea and some things that happened in Ukraine. But maybe this would be a good way to see how the kleptocracy operates and how sometimes it can get fixed. Yeah, that's a that's a great question. I, I, I um, so where do I start? So will so Riggs Bank for listeners who who uh, may not be familiar with it um, is a bank that that uh, dates back to the mid nineteenth century. I mean Abraham Lincoln used this bank. It was a bank based in in Washington. You know it was involved in you know Lincoln used it was involved to finance the Alaska Purchase. I mean it's a very prestigious boutique. Bank, you know, it was never as big as the you know the city banks or the Chases or the J.P. Morgans of the world, uh, but it was very much a, a high class 
uh, boutique bank in the middle of Washington, D.C. It, it billed itself as the president's bank. And, and, and for, for, de for decades, it, it absolutely was. There, there's no reason to think that it was involved in any kinds of shenanigans or, or questionable financial flows whatsoever. Um, and then you fast forward to the 1990s. And again, this is part of a far broader story of the ease with which illicit funds now move with the click of a button. Since, you know, following the end of the Cold War, you have all of these certainly post-communist, but as well as uh, uh, post-colonial regimes emerging that are, you know, they claim to be transitioning democracies, but, but certainly as we've seen are, are anything but are only interested in enriching themselves. And as we saw, uh, Riggs Bank, as well as a number of other American banks in the 1990s, were only too happy to try to get a piece of that exploding geyser of uh, uh, illicit funds. I think I mixed my metaphors there, but I think listeners get get the uh, get the idea. And what we know now, thanks again to Senate investigations as well as other journalists, and as I I detail in the book. In the 1990s, Riggs Bank, which is, again, one of the most prestigious, if not, frankly, the most prestigious bank in the United States, began transitioning away from simply serving, whether it's American presidents or maybe some legislators or maybe even some diplomats. They began honing in on some of the most corrupt actors and uh, diplomatic families that were in Washington. That is to say, these kind of rising class of despotic regimes, of kleptocratic uh, families, of oligarchs. Uh, that are interested only in, again, maintaining these dirty money flows. Uh, there, there, there are two clients in particular that I highlight they worked with. One was um, uh, 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 the ruling family, now the longest standing dictatorship, in the small African country of Equatorial Guinea. Um, small, oil-rich uh, country, a very familiar story for those who, who, who know a little bit about what's called the resource curse, that is to say, new uh, flows of you know gobsmacking amounts of money from from uh, tapped oil wealth, and there's no kind of infrastructure to make sure that it's used properly. There's no oversight whatsoever, and so the ruling regime has hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars that they're looking to move and launder. Uh, and where do they look? But Riggs Bank itself in the 1990s. Now, again, at the time, as far as anyone knows, Riggs wasn't doing anything illegal. There was no legislation against. Uh, using the proceeds of um, uh, foreign corruption or of any uh, uh, finances linked to kleptocratic figures. And so all this family, they're, they're called the Obiang family, all they had to do was send their money to, uh, to Riggs Bank in Washington, D.C., fly over to Washington. All they had to do was pull it out of an ATM or bring it to a teller and say, I'd like $1 million, I'd like $5 million, I'd like $10 million in $20 bills, $100 bills, whatever it might be. That was how easy it was in the 1990s. Now, again, because of legislation, things have gotten a little bit more complicated for banks in particular. But that transition meant that by the early 2000s, Riggs Bank was no longer working with you know, President Bush or President Clinton. Their biggest client was one of the key dictatorships in all of Africa, $700 million dollars for one family, dominating all other clients that they had. Now, I won't go into the details because I think 
I, I don't want to spoil too much of what's in the book, but how they ended up collapsing is a fascinating story and certainly something that intersects with Senator Levin. Um, and I, I, I also wanted to say uh, uh, the other client that they ended up working with that, that we know of, uh, and again, setting up the shell companies to help them move the money, to help them dodge these kinds of money laundering requirements. Um, that was, uh, as listeners may remember, uh, Augusto Pinochet out of Chile, the former sure. autocrat uh, in, uh, in in Chile. Uh, and again, the details of what Riggs Bank was doing on behalf of this former dictator, um, I think what's fascinating about that story, as, as I learned in, in researching this, is not only did, again, they help him set up the shell companies, help him move the money, dodge uh, uh, efforts to freeze his finances and return it to Chile. It's, it's funny, in hindsight, Pinochet apparently had this reputation of being, okay, yeah, he's a strong man. Okay, yeah, his supporters would take uh, opposition figures and, and throw them out of helicopters. And yeah, okay, he led state-sponsored assassination programs. But apparently, he was viewed as somebody who wasn't corrupt, somebody who was only doing it because he loved Chile. Lo and behold, as we now know, because of Riggs Bank, he was as corrupt as they came. And when that information came out, his reputation absolutely imploded. Um, and that is just one story of many. One, just many in stories, the- right? Who's Theodore? And what country was he from? What? So, yes, is he, he Equatorial Guinea? Too? He is Equatorial Guinea. His father okay, is now are. the longest-standing dictator in the world. Um, I, I guess just the quick elevator pitch. I don't know how much longer we have, William, but there are. Okay. You know, we have all the policy discussions. We have all the decisions that go through it. But there is a narrative element to the book. As well, and there's there's two primary case studies that, that I chose. One is uh, the story of Theodorin Obiang, who again is the son of this longstanding dictator, used Riggs Bank, et cetera, et cetera. Um, Theodorin has wanted nothing more. And again, the guy worth hundreds of millions of dollars. He's going to be the next dictator of Equatorial Guinea. All he's ever wanted to do is be this kind of Jay Z of Africa. He just wants to be a celebrity, and he wants to do it here in the U.S. Uh, and so he ends up purchasing the mega mansions. He purchases the private jet. He purchases so many luxury vehicles. He becomes one of the biggest luxury vehicle customers in the United States. He uses the lawyers. He uses the shell company operators, you know, the whole kind of nine yards. And he ends up ingratiating himself with, of all things, Michael Jackson's family and ends up becoming the world's biggest collector of Michael Jackson memorabilia. But I, that's one story that, that threads the book. And, it's amazing. Know, His story is incredible. It's, I mean, it's, it's unbelievable. It's absolutely, it is unbelievable. It's absolutely insane. But I think when listeners think of maybe some of these figures, that might be what they think of, the kind of the flash, the celebrity, et cetera. And that's fine. That certainly exists. But there's another story in there of a Ukrainian oligarch who had overseen one of the biggest Ponzi schemes that the country of Ukraine, which certainly has had its share of instability and its own concerning interactions with Russia, with the U.S., played a very key role in the last decade of geopolitics and with this guy at the center of all of it. Uh, And he wanted to move all of his uh, ill-gotten gains. He wanted to move them elsewhere. But he didn't go for the private jets. He didn't go for the mega mansions in, in Miami or in Malibu. Instead, he went to places he thought no one would ever look. He went to the Rust Belt. He went to the American Midwest. He ended up becoming the biggest real estate landlord in all of Cleveland, Ohio. He ended up coming to dominate small towns across states like Illinois, uh, Kentucky, uh, West Virginia, Ohio, you name it. The places that we really don't think of when we think of these kind of illicit transnational, international financial flows. And so what the book gets into in the second half is how has this begun affecting 
middle America, Main Street America, not the Miamis and the Malibus of the world, but the Midwest, these kind of depressed economies. We think we have some rationale for why that happened, why are jobs moving elsewhere? But what role have these broader financial transitions played? What role have these kleptocrats played? How much have we overlooked? How much don't we still know? And then what can we do about it? Right. So you address that in the book. That's a question from Illustrate Life. Are there any solutions? I select people, suggest people go check out the book. Where is the best place to obtain American kleptocracy? Yeah, that's a great question. William. Certainly any local bookstore you have uh, is available to you. If they don't have it available, just give them a call. They'll pick it up uh, for you. You know, As somebody who's from Portland, Oregon, I'm always uh, partial to Powell's Bookstore, still my favorite bookstore in the entire world. So I can't recommend going to powells.com enough and ordering from then. And I certainly appreciate any anybody and uh, everybody who, who purchases it. And obviously, if anybody has any further questions pertaining to kleptocracy, money laundering, illicit finance, how it's affected so many different areas and so many different policies, feel free to drop me a line anytime. My contact info is on my website. And your website, again, is caseymichelle.com, C-A-S-E-Y-M-I-C-H-E-L.com, correct? That's correct. So they can reach out to you again. Excellent discussion. Thanks for sharing all that. I highly recommend this book. There's a lot more information, tons of details. It's like uh, it, like the way you laid it out, I think, was really well done. The narrative of following all these crazy stories is really something else. <laughs> there's, there's a lot of them. Yeah. Again, the author's name is Casey Michelle. Title of the book is American Kleptocracy. How the U.S. Created the World's Greatest Money Laundering Scheme in History to be published in November, so you can pre-order it now, folks. Yep. Thanks so much, Casey. Thanks so much, William. Happy All to right. be here. Take care. Stay there.